Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Yesterday, of course, uh, we introduced you to both mayors. Of course, Fred Eisenberger, who was re-elected in Hamilton, and Marianne Mead Ward, they are the mayor-elect in Burlington. But during our conversation with, uh, with Mayor Eisenberger, uh, he suggested that uh, this past election on Monday was, in fact, a referendum on LRT, and this gives council a strong mandate to continue with the LRT project, and frankly, uh, to continue and end the discussion about this and just move forward, uh, which is a rather interesting take on that, because I know that obviously during the campaign, uh, the mayor has suggested this is not a referendum on LRT, but uh, I guess uh, he changed his mind as the things were going on. I don't know. But is this a, a mandate for city council? And is this, as the mayor suggested, a message to those councillors who were not supportive of it to get on board? Well, let's ask one of those councillors. Brad Clark, of course, is the newly re-elected uh, councillor for Ward 9. He joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this morning. Brad, how are you doing today? I'm pooped. 15 <laughs> hours of taking signs down. <laughs> yeah, that's that's that post-election hangover, right? Oh, yes, it was bad. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, let's, uh, and by the way, you're, I, I wish the other people at RAM would start doing what you just did, too. There's still a lot of them around town. All of mine are down. <laughs> but I digress. Let, let's talk about this. You and I talked about the sign election night, of course, about uh, LRT and, yeah. and, and the fact that uh, many people consider this to be a, a referendum on LRT. You're either for it or against it. I'm not so sure that everybody that cast a ballot on Monday was of that mind, but that seems to be the way it was characterized. Uh, you preferred another form. You've preferred bus rapid transit in the past. Uh, maybe before we get into that conversation, let's talk a little bit about what your stand is right now. Uh, I still think that bus rapid transit uh, would be um, the preferred option. I think we are overbuilding on LRT, uh, and I'm not really convinced that um, the vote was a referendum on LRT. I think there were many, many issues in play and many different positions of different candidates, including Vito and Fred, that may have swayed voters one way or the other. So the message that, uh, that the mayor is suggesting here is that council needs to just move ahead on this now. In other words, the public has spoken on this. You, you don't take it that way. I, I completely respect his opinion, um, but no, I don't. So where does, the, where does this leave you and, and many others on this council right now that had some reservations about this project? Uh, when the council resumes their work, it, it'll be in December, of course, after you're sworn in, uh, do you bring this debate up again? Do you go back to square one? What's, what's the purpose here, and, and what's the direction that we should be taking as, as a community and as you guys as council? I, I haven't had an opportunity to speak to other councillors yet, so I... I I'm, I'm being really cautious because I don't know sure. different positions across the board. I believe, and I may stand to be corrected, but the operational agreement will be the next major vote on this LRT project. And I think things will come to a culmination at that point. And I hope uh, that council and, uh, has a better understanding of the provincial government's position, because as you know, during the campaign, um, it was about as clear as mud at times. Yeah, depending on who you talk to, or and, and you know, everybody seemed to quote the premier on this, but the premier didn't talk, tell you a whole lot about this. And that's human nature. Different interpretations of exactly the, the same thing that we heard. Yeah. Um, but I think we do need some clarity. Hopefully, something in writing from the province, so that people around the table, as we're making that final decision on the operational agreement. Uh, will fully understand uh, if there are options or if there are not options. And as it stands right now, my understanding, and again, this is the, the latest incarnation of, of the director from Queen's Park, 
is that uh, they still say that the money is there, but it's for. Uh, I was told it was for transit-related issues, not just for infra- infrastructure or anything else we wanted. Yeah, and and I have different messages from different people at Queens Park, and I, I think we, I think they owe it to us with the greatest of respect to the premier and the cabinet and the MPPs. They they owe it to the city of Hamilton to be as clear as possible on what the council's options are. And if it is solely for transit, then then advise us so. Uh, if there is other flexibility, then advise us of that. But I, I really think everyone around that table would be incredibly grateful if there was something in writing from the province making it very clear, at least in my opinion. So. If you get that clarity, Brad, do you ever see yourself supporting this project? Uh, I... It would be very difficult for me in Ward 9, um, you know, taking the lead from the mayor when he says that it was a referendum on LRT. In Ward 9, four of five candidates uh, were very clear in their opposition, and four of the five candidates had the highest number of votes when we look at them all. So uh, realistically, when I was going door-to-door and I was asking people in Ward 9 about it, they, they were very clearly opposed. And you want to represent that interest uh, at the council table. That is the, de- that is the democratic process, so whether we, we like it or not. When there isn't an election and you're asking constituents their positions, then it is your responsibility as an elected official uh, to represent that, that position. I'm just doing a head count. I'm, you know, we, I, let's face it, Brad, everybody's been speculating about this ever since uh, Monday night. Uh, as to whether or not if there was going to be a vote about this, and you're right, it's going to have to be with that, that partnership agreement that's going to come before council. Probably, I don't know if it's going to be December or January. But when you're doing a head count, uh, we're in the same position we were before the election. In other words, the majority of people on council, the stated opinions as of last time, uh, are not in favor of LRT. Uh, yes, and, and I think that's why um, my caveat is we really need to understand from the province what the options are. And if, if they don't provide us something in writing, then it really it will be up to those candidates or those councillors, sorry, those elected councillors um, to make the decision. And I think the majority of them, um, right across the board, whether they're pro or opposed, are really voting the conscience of their constituents. Well, that's what we heard from Esther Pauls, uh, the uh, you know, newly elected uh, Ward 7 councillor. She said she's opposed to it because that's what she heard at the doors. Uh, but she wants to hear more, obviously, as we go on. But uh, do you see this new council rehashing old information? And uh, you know, if, I mean, from the city standpoint, let alone what we're supposed to hear from the province. Do we do we go back to square one to try to bring the new councilors up to speed? I I hope that's not the case because those would be long protracted meetings, which are redundant. The information has been provided. Now there are some new councilors who have been elected, but. From my take, anyways, most of them have a very clear position on, on LRT. Um, so I, I really think the operational agreement will be that pivotal moment. Uh, we now know the operating costs, and the decision will be made at, at that particular point in time. All right, Brad, let's talk about something else uh, mm-hmm. related to this. And, and it's speculative, I guess. I understand that. But you've been around Queen's Park. You've been around the cabinet table at Queen's Park uh, when, when you were uh, working for the Harris government and, and the Eves government. Uh, there's some speculation right now that the money not even be coming here, and 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 this is in 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 light of the fact that well, just another announcement yesterday about canceling money that was supposed to go to uh, university campus expansion. Uh, they're going over just about every item in the in the budget now and simply saying not can't do that, can't do that, can't do that. 
What are they going to do, in, in, in your opinion, when they get to that line about LRT Hamilton and the budget? That's an excellent question, and I don't. I, I wish I had an answer. I'm not um, that connected to anyone down at Queens Park that actually understands exactly where the finances are. Um, if there was trepidation about the billion dollars being spent on infrastructure and that that promise was was weak, one could argue that the promise to proceed with LRT was weak also because it was a liberal commitment. And in partisan politics, it's really difficult to predict the outcome. Um, at the end of the day, I think the, the, the Premier and the Cabinet will have to make some hard choices but they did make a commitment, Bill, as you know, um, for that billion dollars for LRT or transit or whatever the gray area is that we have not seen in, in black and white yet. But we've seen governments in the past of all stripes, though, Brad, and, and you know the old political axiom is uh, they're going to do it, they're going to do it right up until the time that they announce they're not going to do it. Uh, and. <laughs> Uh, and, and, true, actually. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> it's uh, it's one of the things that we just have to come to accept. It. I mean, I, and I'm not pointing accusing fingers at Queens Park, not yet, anyway, uh, because we don't have that announcement. But I just think it makes an awful lot of people on both sides of this issue a little nervous right now. Uh, that you know, this may not have been you know a referendum, but it also might have been a moot point because if the government's going to draw the money back and simply say, "Look, we'll build something else," but you're not going to get a billion dollars, gang. That's all there is to it. Uh, then w- that leaves us scrambling, essentially. Yes, and and uh, and I understand partisan politics and and a government's position during a municipal election. They're not going to officially wade into to to the election um, and 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 cause disruption. But I think you and I are well aware that at some point the government has to make a decision on the finances, and it would be very helpful if they would make that decision and let us know what's going on so that we can make an informed decision. And, and I'm not uh, suggesting that, you know, the government, that the Ford government's actually, you know, doing anything of a, a vile nature. Not, this is not a vendetta. They wouldn't do that to Hamilton unless Patrick Brown was running here. I guess they'd do it to us <laughs> then. then. But, uh, well, yeah, by the way, uh, Brampton, you're not getting that campus. So thanks for electing Patrick Brown. But... <laughs> But anyway, I digress again. But the reality here is that, you know, the, the, this is getting pretty tenuous right now. And I know a lot of communities, not just Hamilton, are looking at some of those commitments. And, and, and I don't know if you can take that to the bank uh, to simply say, well, he said you're going to get it, so you're going to get it. Because if they can come back and, you know, say, let's say, look, we didn't see the books then. We didn't have our audit report then. So things have changed. And, and you know, the days, everything in politics now seems to be working on a 24-hour cycle. And everything can change within that 24 hours. And, and I think it's always been that way. Um, but what we, what we do know is that they froze um, uh, the the expropriation process by Metrolinx. Yeah. So I, and I don't want to read into that. I don't want, you know, I, we all heard the Premier's comments during the campaign and, and, and uh, Member Skelly's comments we have to operate under the assumption until told otherwise that the billion dollar commitment is there for Hamilton, but it would be incredibly helpful. And with the greatest of respect to the government, if they gave us something in writing to clarify exactly what the options are for city council to consider. And if you get that clarity, uh, do you see yourself moving a motion, for instance, to simply say, forget about LRT, let's go to bus transit? I, I think what I would like to do at that particular point in time, depending on what the decision is, is to have that conversation with councillors uh, and with the public. 
Um, I still believe that we're overbuilding. I still believe that the numbers aren't there. Um, but as I have done in the past, and people know this of me, I ultimately will respect the decision of the council. I've never been an obstructionist. So uh, while I may be the one that's voting against the operational agreement, if council decides to move forward with LRT, I'm, I'm not the kind of councillor who will obstruct that. I, I've always believed that once the council has made the decision, that decision is now the decision of council, and we have to move forward with that. Um, but I will represent my constituents on the operational agreement. If there were to be a change in policy, and, and it's not just you that would institute that, obviously, like you say, there has to be nine votes to, make, to get anything going here. Uh, do you have to actually have an up-and-down vote about uh, LRT and the commitment to it, or do you think uh, by by turning down the operational agreement that's going to come forward to Council in the next couple of months, does that effectively kill the project? Well, if they turn down the operational agreement, I, I believe technically that does kill the LRT. Um, but then there would have to be something. Uh, you know, what are we, what are we going to do then? Uh, and that's why I think it's really important that before we even get to that point, we need to have something from the government to clarify what the options are. So if if, if council, and these are all speculations, sure. I, uh, we don't know what's going to happen, but if council were to, to vote against the operational agreement, uh, then at that particular point in time, council now has to decide what they're going to do. Are they going to adopt bus rapid transit? Um, they've already indicated they're moving ahead with the, the 10-year transit plan. Are they going to fund that? And what are the options from the government? And, and that's why it's so great, because we really don't know um, exactly what council can do with the money, because we haven't received it, at, at least from my understanding, Bill. I could be, again, stand to be correct. I haven't seen anything in writing from the government. I don't think that exists, yeah. uh, because I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that those that support the projects would be waving that paper around. Yeah. Uh, so I I, got, I don't think it's there. And by the way, when I suggest that, that you know I'm skeptical about whether or not the money's going to come here, uh, that's not a reflection on what Donna Skelly has said because I know she's reiterated a couple of times. But but you again, you know how government works, having been in cabinet in in the past, though, Brad, is those decisions are made at the cabinet table, and and Donna may actually be the last one to find out about it. They may give her a heads up about it, but I doubt very much she's going to be involved in that decision. She'll simply be told what the decision is. Well, I, I recall being an MPP, Tony Screek and I running very clearly opposed to amalgamation. Oh, yeah. In the provincial campaign. I remember that debate. <laughs> yeah, and, and and then, as you recall, much to my surprise, uh, very shortly after, um, there was a bill in the House doing the amalgamation. And yet the government, prior to that, uh, made it very clear that that really wasn't on the table. So governments changed their positions as do people, but we really need to have something in writing. I think that's only fair uh, to everyone in the city of Hamilton that the provincial government actually sends a letter to Mayor Eisenberger and councillors indicating exactly where we stand on the LRT file on the billion dollars, and from that we can make um, a truly informed decision. Well, uh, the ball's in their court, I guess, to do that, or maybe even more specifically, I guess it might be in the mayor's court to simply say, look, at, get in touch with them. I mean, let's start that dialogue now that we know how the council is going to look. Oh, and Mayor Eisenberg has been very proactive in that yeah. regard. So I, I, I would be surprised if he hasn't already made that request. Um, but I, I think the entire council would like to see that. 
Brad, thanks as always. Appreciate the time. My pleasure, Bill. Anytime. You betcha. Brad Clark, of course, the uh, uh, re-elected city councilor, of course, uh, for Ward 9 up in Stony Creek Mountain. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We uh, had a discussion with Brad Clark in the first hour, a newly re-elected city councilor, of course, uh, who's going to head back and take the seat over that uh, he held previously. But there are lots of other new faces on this council. And i got to tell you, we met all of them, I guess, on Monday night, on election night, when they came down to City Hall. Uh, and I was impressed with them. But the, the, I guess the, the t- big takeaway here now is there are more women on Hamilton City Council than ever before, which begs the question, what kind of an impact uh, are they going to have on this council? Laura Babcock, president of Power Group, joins us uh, in studio to talk about this. How are you doing this morning? Have you recovered from the election yet? <laughs> My voice might be a little scratchy. Uh, and there's so much to that question, Bill, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in terms of what came out of it. But I do want to say I am doing great. It's my son Darrow's 10th birthday today. Oh, so. happy birthday, yeah. Darrow. Can you believe it's been 10 years? No. You were at his first birthday I was party. at his first birthday party <laughs> yeah. in the backyard there, yeah. <laughs> Uh, So, yeah, I'm doing well. But you know what? Um, Listening to Brad Clark earlier and just knowing how this government provincially seems to be looking um, with with quite a quite a, you know, sharp knife at ways to cut from their spending. Right. There is a promise of six billions in savings and being able to take money away from things like basic income and and the minimum wage promises and now universities. I mean, what is honestly to stop them from taking the money away from the city of Hamilton, especially when we keep putting out mixed messages? Um, So my hope certainly is that uh, Fred Eisenberger, with the serious numbers that he got uh, and the new councillors, are going to be able to come up with a strategy where at least Hamilton is putting together the strongest possible case to keep funding coming to our city, as opposed to uh, getting into its own little internecine fight, uh, which is possible, uh, and then probable, giving, I would say. Uh, yes, I'm trying to be optimistic, Bill, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, which will lead. You know what? If I'm if I'm at the and I've heard other former cabinet ministers say this. Um, if you're at the cabinet table and there's uh, an envelope or a funding commitment that's supposed to go out and the people who are supposed to receive it can't get their ducks in a row, it makes it really easy to say, you know what, <laughs> really, what yeah. are they going to do about it, right? Whereas when you have leverage, in other words, where you're mobilized and you make it a, a high priority and you there could be political ramifications, uh, if the funding doesn't get followed through on, then it's harder to just take that money away. So I'm I'm hoping that uh, Fred is being as proactive as Brad suggested earlier, and he is talking to the province and getting some commitments, and that council will move quickly to approve that operational budget for LRT and get on with it. As I said on the O Show last night, you know, let's get off the tracks, let the train come through, and focus on a hundred million other things we have to do in this city. And and get that commitment from Queens yeah, Park. Yeah, just get it done in, in paper, on paper, yeah, rather. Yeah. You know, so but you, can you know, say, what? Yeah, Tom Jackson saying this, they're all looking for the L. Right, they're all looking for the commitment that that billion dollars can be used for potholes or for other infrastructure. Uh, you know, we don't hear a lot in the conversation about the fact that the LRT has a whole lot of infrastructure funding built into it in terms of what will happen as they as they put those tracks down. Um, but, you know, they're all looking for the off-ramp. They've been saying it for a number of years. It has a lot more to do with people in Hamilton getting re-elected over and over and over again um, than it has to do with a forward vision for our city and respecting all the time and effort and energy and money that the taxpayers have already put into this project, right? So, uh, 
so uh, it's not news that there is a political culture in Hamilton that lacks longer term commitment, vision, strategy. It's very frustrating. But I'm hoping that some of the new councillors can bring um, some fresh ideas, some fresh courage around our council. That would be great. You've met them. Uh, I have, yeah. John Paul Danko uh, we had on the show on Monday. And, of course, we'll talk about the the women, uh, the new ones, too. too. What's your impression? I I, I was very Mm -hmm. impressed, actually, with the quality of of all of them that won Mm -hmm. uh, for first time on, on Monday night. Well, you know what? It's interesting you asked that question because I was the moderator of the debate for the by-election. Yeah. And it's the first time that I'd met John Paul Danko. It was at some school on the mountain. And I thought of all the candidates, he, including Donna Skelly, he was the most prepared, the most professional. And so I made a point afterwards of saying, like, who are you? <laughs> you know, where'd yeah. you come from? Yeah. Uh, and then got to know him over the last year. And he almost won that. It was very close with Donna Skelly. Uh, and so, you know, I certainly thought a moderate voice on council, somebody who lives in a ward, understands it has a, you know, there's very little about Jean-Paul Danko that people, when you meet him or you look at him on paper, you don't like. And I think that that, that um, having him a moderate voice, a successful business person, uh, his wife, of course, is the school trustee for the Catholic board. They're just a great family. And having him, I think, would be very helpful. I don't know Narinda personally, but I certainly uh, obviously know Matt Green, and I, I know a number of Narinda's friends, and they speak very highly of her intelligence. And she helped organize that amazing campaign that Matt Green ran a few years ago, you mm-hmm. know, that, that was technically and, and from a messaging perspective one of the best I've seen. Uh, so obviously she's got some strong skills, and I, I look forward to that skill set coming around the table. Maureen Wilson, you know, it's funny. Um, <laughs> I, I felt that the second that I heard her on, on Graham Crawford's podcast that she was maybe going to be taking a public role because when you sort of put yourself out there and, and start to make uh, opinions and form them in a public uh, airspace, usually there's some sort of intention even if you f- don't fully realize it yet. So I wasn't surprised when she decided to run. I think that she understands council very well from her time back well, in Well, that's what I said to her when she showed up Monday. I said, yeah. welcome back to City Hall. Exactly. She's back on her ground. Uh, and I think she's tough. And I don't think she's going to suffer fools lightly, right? Um, but also there's the dynamic of when you're a critic and then you end up around the, the horseshoe, is there going to be some sort of tension to try to get past as well? Um, so all of them very interesting people. Um and I'm sorry, who's, who are we? Well, we, we, uh, yeah. let me ask you about yeah. Esther Go. Paul. Oh, Esther, of course. Now, everybody yes. knows us. She's, oh, my she's goodness. been vibrant and lively in this community for the longest time. She called our show and, you know, and she, she revved us all up on election <laughs> night. <laughs> uh, Esther is, is a tornado of enthusiasm and energy. And I love the idea that she is going to shake <laughs> them up. I mean, there, there really is a consolidation of power around council. The, the longtime councillors, Collins and Marula and Jackson and maybe Ferguson's in that mix now. They have a tremendous amount of knowledge and power. Um, and over the years, it has sometimes seemed as though they've been a little casual with that. I can see, <laughs> just in terms of, you know, not listening to delegations and things of that nature, uh, I can see Esther not putting up with anything like that. Right? I'd I put all three of them in that boat. Now, mm-hmm. I, again, as I say, I just met Narendra for the first yeah, time, but I yeah. knew of her by reputation. Yeah. I, I worked with Maureen uh, back when I was on city council, and of course, everybody knows about Esther and her vibrant mm-hmm. personality. These are strong women. Yes, absolutely. And, and i got to tell you, really, Laurie, I know some of the people around that council table, they're not going to like that very much. I would concur. Um, not because they don't like women, but because 
I think all three of these women are a force. I think, and it kind of, the reason why a lot of women don't get into elected office is because they're too busy running their homes, their families, their family budget, their businesses, right? Yeah. It, it is really a, a role that I've certainly experienced. I do it too. Uh, so if they're going to make the leap into politics, they're not going to waste time and mess around, truly, because uh, they've women generally have too much they have to do. So I expect that these women are going to, you know, say we can operate faster, better, more pragmatic. Like, let's get going here. I got stuff to do, and I, I think that's a wonderful thing. There is a problem oftentimes on city councils uh, with uh, a group. Mm-hmm. The, the veterans, uh, and you know, some of them, and it varies sometimes depending on the issue. Uh, and there's a great deal of pressure for newcomers to either conform or be alienated. Absolutely. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see how that dynamic plays out because uh, I, I can't see any of them, uh, you know, getting uh, intimidated, for instance, by by those, those sorts of tactics. Absolutely not. I mean... Th- those three women, and as I said, is that what I know of Narinder, uh, they are not to be intimidated. And I think that counselors who want to move an agenda should quickly just get over that and realize that it's a new day. It's a new dawn on Hamilton Council. Uh, now, does it mean that they're going to know everything and that they're not going to make mistakes and that they don't have a whole lot of stuff to catch up on and a learning curve? Absolutely. Um, but I, I have high hopes that maybe we'll see a different functionality, a different productivity a coming different out of tone? council. A different tone, yeah, and maybe not, and maybe not a uh, a kinder, gentler tone. I'm certainly not known to be kind and gentle. I'm a force myself, and I, that's great. Works well for me in business, and I hope that those women bring that as well. Uh, and I hope that they're not, you know, I hope that there's not those horrible sexist currents out there that say that a strong woman is, you know, something not nice, right? But you've experienced that. Oh my goodness! Come on, yes, of course. <laughs> I take the I take the B word label as a as a as a sign of I'm I'm pushing the envelope and making things happen. Um, but I just hope that they're not exposed to that. I hope in 2018, 2019. We're at the point where women can be strong. I was I was uh, joking on Twitter that uh, a couple of people didn't think I should be laughing on election night because professional women don't laugh, right? Oh, really? <laughs> I know. Would a man ever get that if they laughed at it? I mean, come on. So I'm hoping that these women uh, hit it and bring their best to it. And, and John Paul Danko as well. I think he's going to, and Brad Clark is back in there. I'll be interested to see how he uses this next chance at council. I have some thoughts about that. Um, but I do think that it changes things. And most importantly... It tells our daughters that, you know, almost, almost half of our city council are women. So politics is not a male sport anymore. It's not a man's game. And uh, if you want to do it, you can do it now. And whenever women see that, they, as children, young girls, whenever they see it, then they sort of reshape their thinking around the opportunities for them. And I think that's fantastic. Well, the, the three new women uh, that are going to join out, the other ones, the veterans that have already been reelected, uh, I'll bring something to the table, and that's professionalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and a, mm-hmm. I, I, from what I got from talking to them on Monday night, uh, a very, very strong basis of policy. Yes, smart, smart cookies. And I loved even Esther Pauls when she said, you know what, I know what I know of LRT from the spectator side of things. Once I'm in council, I'm going to go in there, dive deep and learn, right? And then I'll form my opinion. I love that. Open-mindedness. I'm not an ideologue. I, I want LRT, but I love her answer. Go in there and find out. To your question, though, about whether or not they're going to stay principled or whether they're going to get into the horse trading game and be pragmatists, 
you know, I don't think that they need to be outliers to be principled at council. That's sort of been the trend in the past. If you're going to stick to your principles, you kind of get shoved to the side. Uh, we saw that with Matt Green right from the beginning. He was going to do this principled and he became a bit of an outlier. Well, and we saw it with Brad Clark. Absolutely. Um, there's a lot of acrimony around that table. Absolutely. So you know what? I hope we get past that in Hamilton. I hope we realize that just because someone is principled and isn't into the old school horse trading game that this city, I think, has led to some corruption over the years, uh, that's, that's a good thing. You know, it's a good thing. Be principled and be part of the discussion. Be at the table as opposed to being shunned. So I think there's a new dynamic. You know, if you've got three highly principled, intelligent uh, new people coming on, a fourth with John Paul Danko, you're not going to be able to sideline all four of them, right? Well, that's what the hope is going to be at yeah. this stage. And, and I, I get the sense from, from all of them, from John Paul and from the, the three uh, ladies, that, uh, that they're going to hit the ground running. Yeah, and hope is not a plan, right? Hope is not a strategy. Yeah. Um, so I hope they have a plan. <laughs> I've said to every candidate who says, I'm, when I get on Hamilton Council on their victory celebrations, I'm not going to get into that whole, uh, that whole culture. And I Everybody say, really? says that. I say, so what's the plan, right? <laughs> you know, hope and tension is one thing. I mean, I'm a strategist. You've got to have a plan to back up the intent. So I'm hoping that they have a plan. You know, just because there might be a triad over here or a consolidation of power over here, why can't you have your own? Why can't you go in and coordinate your own votes? I mean, that's what it's about. Well, when you're going around like that from, you know, and there's 16 people around the table, I mean, you've got to form your alliances and, you and know who you can count on and who you can trust. Well, you remember back in the Danny Mayer days, yeah. he always knew the count on the vote. He had a certain councillors that subscribed to his vision for the city, and that's how he was able to get stuff done. Um, people might not love everything about what he did during his term, and that's fair, but he understood how to get people together. And Fred is coming in now, let's face it, a third term as mayor, right? And he's got a big mandate. He's a, he's a good man, and people know that. Is he going to be focused and ambitious enough to push this LRT through the, that operational budget? Um, this is not a time to slow down, right? Now, this is where you put the pedal to the metal. And, and I, I, I look forward to him exercising what seems to be a, a pretty big mandate that he's received. I'm, uh, I'm not suggesting that Fred's uh, last term is, is upon us. I mean, he may want to run for the next 20 years. I don't know. But is, when you're into a third term as, as mayor of a city like Hamilton, do you start thinking about legacy? I would hope so. You know, I think the Hamilton sign is a nice legacy. Uh, I have to bring it up for the rest of my life. I enjoy being <laughs> a part of that. <laughs> um, but the, I think so. But I, but I think for him, it, it's a legacy's fine, but it's really about, okay, why, if this election was made into a referendum in spite of his campaign desires and stated so, okay, fine. You know, if people really didn't want the train, they could have voted for Vito in uh, oh, more than Fred. There might have been other calculations why they didn't. They didn't know enough about him, whatever. Um, but whatever it is, at the end of the day, Fred got a big, big number, maybe the biggest of any Marison's amalgamation. What's he going to do with that? I don't care so much about legacy. I care about now. You know, there's a massive project in front of us. There's some big hurdles ahead of us. What is he doing now? If it were me, it'd be all hands on deck to get that operational thing signed, and I wouldn't think of much else until I got, yeah. made it happen. Well, and that's the legacy I've been thinking yeah. about. Yeah, no, sure. To... It is a legacy, but I just... I mean, Jack, yeah. Jack McDonald, the late Jack McDonald was that way. I mean, the expressway yeah. was, was yeah. his. And he, sure. I mean, from the time he was an alderman in the early 1960s mm-hmm. and then mayor, even when he was out of politics, he was never out of politics. He was always <laughs> the, the, the yeah. advocate for the expressway. <laughs> My favorite thing about Jack is every time he said, how's it going? He goes, I'm on this side of the grass, so it's a good day, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but so, yeah, so, I mean, if you're doing it for your legacy, awesome. But I prefer that you do it for the immediate benefit of the people you represent. Uh, and that's all I'm saying, right? Right. Um, 
it it's we're we're so close. There are so many people who have dedicated so much time, and it's a good project for environmental reasons, for future reasons, for investment reasons. There's a, a multitude of reasons why LRT should just get finished, and he needs to articulate that often and get those votes on council. Laura Babcock from Power Group. Always a pleasure. Thanks for coming in today. Thanks, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, though, time for our uh, visit with our friends at the Bob Kemp Hospice. What is the impact on caregivers when it is revealed that there is no cure? I mean, you hear that, uh, and it's it's something that has an impact on everybody in the family. Uh, I want to continue that conversation with our uh, good friend Claire Friedman, of course, uh, from the Bob Kemp Hospice, who is with us here. Good to see you again, Claire. Thanks for having us. And also uh, in studio with us is Jay Perry, who is a photographer and a caregiver. Jay, thanks for coming here. Great to see you. Thanks for having me, too. Tell me your story, first of all. I, I want to talk about your dad and, 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 and that, but I mean, uh, you got into photography almost uh, by accident, really, didn't you? Yeah, so I grew up in Stony Creek. Um, Played in a band for five, six years, and then once that ended, I got into web design. After that, I kind of uh, fell into photography from borrowing a camera from my brother and loved the process of photography and then just jumped right into it. Now, your photography took you to Haiti one time, and and that had a real impact on your life. Yeah, I was kind of a struggling photographer until I went on a mission trip there, and it was a photo that I took in Haiti that kind of really helped launch my career, which was uh, amazing for me. But it also had an impact on you as an individual. Uh, it definitely changed my life, for sure, and made me um, so grateful for what I have in Canada. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And and it's it's from what I understand, it, it moved you onto a, a path of, 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 of helping others and wanting to, to give back. Uh, 100%. Um, it definitely opened my eyes to a life of service. Um, coming home from Haiti and starting up an organization um, in Hamilton called Friends with Hearts, that has, you know, exploded into something massive across Canada and the United States now. And it definitely all started from that trip to Haiti, for sure. Incredible organization. And uh, we can give some more information about that in a couple of minutes. So let's talk about how you had your your incidents with with, uh, with hospice care. Uh, and it all circles around your dad, doesn't it? Yep, definitely. He, uh, he was diagnosed with stage 4 lung cancer in early 2013. And immediately I decided to um, become his caregiver and quit my photography job, which I had been working a few years to kind of get to a certain level, which I, I did. It was, it, was, it was taking off. Um, and he was given nine months to live. So I decided... What was, that, what was that like when you heard that? Uh, it was gut-wrenching. Um, I can still remember the exact day, March 5th, uh, 2013 being in the hospital room and you know it's it's amazing how easily a doctor can tell you that news and we had a team of doctors in there and my I knew it was coming and I knew my dad was going to ask the question how long do I have and I was just praying he didn't and sure enough he did and it was instantly a doctor said you got nine months to a year to live and I, I felt my stomach drop um, my mom she had to leave us. I don't even know. She went and I think she was off crying. Who knows? But it sucks because you feel so helpless and you you want to do whatever you can to fix him and, and change roles with him. And you just see someone so sad and devastated. Um, and it's kind of a diagnosis for him, but it's also a diagnosis for the whole family as mm-hmm. well. And you all take it. And it honestly, there's no other words and it sucks. That, that's what it is. You're looking around the room. You're looking at your dad, obviously, and 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 the the. the what are the emotions? Obviously, there's, there's sorrow, 
because uh, I've heard I've heard anger. I mean, there's the, it runs the range, doesn't it, Claire? Absolutely. I mean, it, it's it's devastating. I mean, there's you know people ask themselves, you know, is this true? Um, maybe it's not true. It can can we go somewhere else and and, and get uh, different kind of therapies? Um, you know, sometimes angry regret, sadness, definitely. Um, uh, we we hear it from from families, but it's it's really just the, the that that overwhelming impact of hearing those words that just make everything else around you feel surreal in the moment. I, I mean, it's we we know the death is inevitable, but when it's as, when it's a loved one like your dad situation, it it, it hits you like a ton of bricks, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was the first time I've ever experienced someone so close to me um, being given such um, devastating news, and you you instantly the sadness hits in, um, definitely some anger. But after a while, I think you go into this fight or flight mode where it's kind of like, okay, well, that's fine that the doctor said that, but I'm going to figure this out. And, and this, all these crazy emotions come in and I don't care that he said that I'm going to research and research and I'm going to figure this out. There's no way he's dying. And that was me for a few months, just continually researching, which I think was very beneficial in um, because he was given nine months to live and he ended up living two and a half years. And through his whole journey, we had doctors baffled. Um, no, I could never find a cure, but I think that we did a lot of th- the little things that allowed him to live two and a half years. You want to buy time. I- exactly. And, that, and then that's what kind of my mentality turned into. It's like, okay, well, I don't think I can cure him but let's buy time. Let's see what we can do and extend the amount of time that I have with my dad. Mm-hmm. Tough decision. <clears throat> and, and people might think on the surface, oh, yeah, of course he gave up his career to, to go and be, be the caregiver. <clears throat> but it's your career. It's your life. Yeah, and, and to be honest, uh, I'm still struggling to get back on my feet from those two and a half years that I gave up because I lost a lot of clients. Um, when I restarted my career almost three years later, I had to buy all new gear, new computers. Um, so I'm 100% in a worse off position career-wise than when I when he first got diagnosed. And that sucks as well. But I always tell everybody, I don't want to know a life where I didn't give up that time for him. Um, and I'm so happy that I gave up my career and I'm in this position because I got to experience um, so many incredible moments with my dad over his journey. So you do it all over again if you had to. I, it would in a heartbeat, and I, I would recommend that other people do that, do it as well, because um, it was life-changing for me um, in, in a negative in the financial way, but I think there's always time to make money, and that's what I tell people. You've got your lifetime ahead of you to make money, but you've only got a certain amount of time to make memories that matter. And I know you, you hold on to those memories, and, and, and that's what sustains us, I guess, as human beings, to have those memories and to, to remember those happy times. Absolutely. It's about, and, and that's what hospice palliative care is, is yeah. about, is in ensuring that, you know, you get to live the best life you, you can with the, the least amount of uh, symptoms associated with whatever um, uh, palliative illness that you, you have, um, and then bringing the comfort and care, and, and having those last moments, like, you know, um, with Jay, it was his dad we have young families too where children are are losing a parent where they're you know three and four and you know and the parent is saying to us you know I think my child will never remember me and you have a child who says will I remember my parents so it's working with families around so you can create those lasting memories and and it's important and just like Jay said you know we can we can make money uh, you know 
after and uh, but we can't make up those times or whatnot but we do need to make sure that we're supporting caregivers as well because of the financial cost right so that's one of the things you know I personally think that if we had more government support to help folks who had to give up their job to take care of their their uh, their their loved ones so that they don't have to struggle you know financially after Talk to us about the, the, the hospice care and, and how that was. I mean, obviously, as, as the caregiver, you want to do everything you possibly can to, to extend your dad's life and at the same time make sure that he's comfortable. But you, you do reach a point where you just say, I don't know if I can do this. I'm not qualified. I'm not capable of doing it. Yeah, f- for us, it was um, it was about two, just over two years into his journey where he went to the hospital, I guess his, his last time, um, for some symptoms he was having. And they, he was just sleeping a lot, and they finally said, you know, there's not much we can do um, at the hospital. It's probably a good idea to look into a hospice. Um, that was also, you know, hard to hear as well. And we were kind of searching around, and we ended up getting into a hospice in Grimsby, McNally House. Um, and what an amazing place that is, what hospice do for people. Um, it, it, felt, it felt like it was at home. Uh, you didn't see doctors or tubes or medical equipment all around. And the, the funny part is um, we're not sure if my dad knew exactly where he was. He always referred to the hospice as the apart- the rehab apartment he was in. Mm-hmm. Um, and we weren't sure if we should totally tell him what was happening. But, I mean, he got, they got, he got to go in the, a warm bath every day if he wanted. Uh, it his specific breakfast that he anything he wanted yeah, yeah. he he had this specific breakfast that he always wanted he loved the bagel with an egg in there um they didn't have that but they went out to the grocery store and got that specifically for him and what's amazing is it was free we didn't spend a cent on this they fed us they had soup cookies for us all the time so although it, it it's a sad place because there's a lot of signs or thoughts of death when you go into a hospice it was 110 percent better than being in a hospital and you do come to realizations that this is the end um and how long are you going to be in there for and, and whatnot but you get to be make friends with everyone who's in there with all the yeah. other families it's a real sense of community right isn't and there? I, I think that helps you a lot as well because when you're in the hospital i think there's still a thought of okay, we're still going to find a cure. Can you, can you fix him? Can you get him out of this? When you're in the hospice, you, you finally realize that this is the end, but it's not as sad as you think it's going to be because there's others in there helping you through it. And, 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 and you know, I still communicate with some people from the hospice when I met them and hear their journeys and what they're going through. And I think that's great for caregivers to keep in touch because the grieving journey continues. Well, you've got something in common, don't you? Oh, there's, for, there's, there's for sure. There's a bond there with uh, with those other families. For sure. And um, I get messages all the time from people that I don't even know messaging me who, who are going through something, who have seen my journey via um, Facebook posts or, or stuff like that, that want to get in touch with me because I've been through it. And I will always take time to write them back because I know what they're going through. And I know sometimes they just need a voice. No, I'm not going to tell them that their loved one is going to be okay, but if I can just talk to them and, and comfort them in any sort of way, I know that's valuable because I know when I was going through that, I was looking for that sometimes, and it wasn't there a lot. Mm-hmm. So that's why I do shows like this, um, any interviews, because I know that they're valuable for caregivers going through it. 
it's it's the old ad, adage, isn't it, Claire? That somebody that you can speak to, that you can be open minded, and they'll get you because they know what's happening. That because that happened. I see this when we talk to the families at the Hikra Hospice every year, Absolutely. and that may be the only time you actually hook up with them. Oh, hey, there the the Joneses, and uh, and you have that bond. That it's always going to be there, isn't it? Absolutely, and 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 you know what? When we grieve, it's it, it there is no end date for grieving, right? Well, that yep. person will never come back, but we can integrate it into our lives, and we can integrate it into our relationships, and that's why the hike for for hospice yes it's a fundraiser but it's more of a gathering for families to again just to remember and to honor and uh you know just last year somebody came up and their loved one had passed away over 10 years ago and you know they say they come back every year because it's the it's the time that they celebrate that that the person was was in their life because the rest of the things don't always get celebrated year after year after year Talk to me about the staff at the hospice, because because I know when my mom was at the Bob Kemp Hospice, I mean, we were, we were just amazed and and just pleasantly so by the by the staff, by the attitude, by the the, the comradeship that that goes on. Yeah, I think that they are such incredible souls, and it takes a special person. Yeah. To, I couldn't do it. I wouldn't be able to work in a hospice. I don't think. Um, to what they see every day and what they deal with, is amazing, and the fact that they can always be so helpful so happy is but also very emotional when my dad passed what they did was um when they carried when they got him out of the room um all the staff was outside seeing him off and there were actually tears in some of their eyes to me that felt that was amazing because they had such a connection with them and i go back to the doctors at the hospital not that there's anything wrong with the doctors but how they can come in and just say oh by the way you're going to die nine months it's great to see you. Have a good day. No connection whatsoever. And I love that the staff of the hospice give give their time and energy to make you feel better, and not only the patient. What motivated you to write the book about your experience with your dad? So while I was going through my journey, um, a lot of people reached out to me because I was posting via Facebook or Instagram what was happening. And I found that a lot of these people that were reaching out were going through a similar situation. And one of their loved ones just got diagnosed or whatnot. And they weren't reaching out necessarily like, how do I cure my mom or dad? It was, I just need to talk. So I met up with them, you know, had coffee with them, shared my story, what we did that I thought worked, what we did for me that I thought worked, and just just everything, anything that I could. Now, these were only friends of mine that could have access to these posts via online. And they started gaining more momentum and more people were asking and questioning. So I thought... Maybe there's some valuable material there that I that might need to reach further than my online network. So I decided that the best thing to do was put it into a book and try and get that out there for all caregivers. The book is called? The book's called My Dad Got Sick. And the response so far has been, been incredible. Um, and it, it's funny, you know, going back to photography, um, you know, I'll, I'll shoot a, a photo job with, um, let's say, a celebrity athlete and get paid very well. Um, it does nothing for me, you know, other than pay the rent. Yeah, and, yeah. Right. Then I'll sell one book on Amazon. I think I make $3 off a book. But that person messages me on how it changed their day, their life, their future. And what an amazing feeling that is. It totally trumps the other is, uh, is Amazon the best place to get the book? Yeah, right now uh, Amazon has it. If you're in Hamilton, uh, Dravinsky Hospital is carrying it as well. Oh, perfect. Um, 
so yeah, Amazon's probably the best spot. It's uh, it's called My Dad Got Sick: Love and Insights from a Caregiver's Unexpected Journey Through Cancer. Uh, it's an amazing story, and uh, you're amazing too for what you did for your dad and for Thank telling you. that story and, and sharing it with others. Now we're just about out of time, but I got to let you mention the raffle that's coming up. Yes, we have. Uh, I was supposed to win the car last year, <laughs> so yes. maybe this year. Well, yes, we have. Uh, we have a children's bereavement camp, and yeah. children lose things, and and uh, parents and loved ones, and uh, we we are raffling off a Jeep, and our second prize is ten thousand uh, dollars. Tickets are twenty dollars. We really need people's support because there is no funding for this camp whatsoever. Uh, so we have lots of tickets left, so your chances are great. Um, you can call us at the hospice, um, ask for Danielle, um, and you can even email us, and uh, we'd be happy to, to, to sell out our, our lottery and send more kids to camp. Okay, but it's my turn to win, right? Yes. Okay, good. <laughs> you said that last year, Claire. <laughs> anyway, uh, m- thank you so much for coming in today and sharing your story, Jay. It's great to meet you. Yep, thanks for having me. And Claire, we'll it. see you again next week. Thank yep. you again. Thank you. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.